our Bible study is going to be taken from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, chapter number 5. 2 Kings, chapter number 5. And you will need to open up your Bibles. The title of our lesson is No God But in Israel. No God But in Israel. 2 Kings, chapter number 5. Now here in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand and read this chapter. It is a little on the long side, but we'll, we'll muddle our way through it here in a few moments. So we're going to have a look at this story. Now some of you who know your Bibles well are going to recognize this tale. It's the story of a miraculous healing of a man named Naaman. Elisha was the agent of God's prophetic action. And so what we want to look at today is we want to look at this healing, we want to look at this story, we want to derive what we can from it, and see if we can learn some things from uh, the characters that are involved, but also learn from the context of the story. Before we read about the healing of Naaman and Elisha's miraculous activity here, I'd like to give you a little bit of information about the background of this healing. What was the historic context of the people that are mentioned in this chapter? What was the context in which this story is revealed? So let's look at the background context for Elisha's miraculous healing of Naaman. Well, the first item we can say this. This occurred in about the 8th century BC, actually I believe the 9th century BC, probably more closely. And the northern kingdom of Israel was in a period of apostasy. They were in a great period of, of apostasy. Sounds a little bit like our time. Only a minority were still faithful to Jehovah, including the prophet Elisha. The prophet Elisha was, but many were not. Most were not. It was a relatively small remnant that were faithful to to the worship of the great God of heaven, Jehovah. There is a great Syrian king named Benadad. Now Syria, in those days, was on the borderlands of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the capital of Syria was the city of Damascus, a powerful and wealthy city, a beautiful city, an ancient city. King Benadad of Syria had launched an invasion to the northern land of Israel, and while he had not completely conquered it, he had taken away many captives. Many Israelite slaves had been taken away. A number of slaves had been taken away captive out of the land of Israel and were now serving their masters in the land of Syria, including King Benadad, of course, and Benadad's great army chief, Naaman. Naaman had personally killed the previous Israelite king. We discover this from Josephus and other works, and we discover that Naaman, the great army captain who's mentioned in this chapter, had personally shot an arrow it is believed, and killed the previous Israelite king, the infamous King Ahab, whose wife was Jezebel. The current king of Israel was a man named Jehoram, sometimes spelled Joram. Now, Jehoram was Ahab's son. He was a vacillating, indecisive, poor, and wicked king. He reigned in the northern kingdom. His evil mother Jezebel still lived, the wife of Ahab. Now that's the background to this story. So as we read this chapter, we read about Naaman, the king of Israel, Jehoram, the king of Damascus, and a few of the other characters that are introduced to us, Elisha, his servant Gehazi, that is the background story for this particular series of events. That's the background. So without further ado now, let's read this chapter. Now it's going to take a little time, 
But if you're going to really get something out of this Bible study, you need to read this story with me. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And if you are able to stand, please do so. If you're able to stand, if you've got the health and vitality to stand up for just a few minutes, we're going to read 2 Kings chapter number 5, 1 through 27, in honor of the Word of God. Let's read this. Now, we're going to read responsibly. Men, you lead verse 1. Ladies, you follow. And we'll alternate all the way to the end, alternating men and ladies. 2 Kings chapter 5. So let's see what the Word of God has for us today. Here we go. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus saith the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten chains of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send me to recover this man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, then he said to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come to me now, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Wash this seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call in the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near, and spake unto him, and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith unto thee, Wash, and be clean? Then he went down, and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came, and stood before him. And he said, Oh, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him, Take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth, for thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my seer hath spared Naaman this Syrian, and in not receiving at his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, 
I will run after him and take somewhat of him. So Gehazi followed after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him. He said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master hath sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of gold. And Naaman said, Be content, take two talents. And he urged him, and bound two talents of silver into the bags with two changes of garments, and laid them upon two of his servants, and they bare them before him. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand, and bestowed them in the house. And he let the men go, and they departed. But he went in, stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went not whither. Art with thee, when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money, and to receive garments, and olive yards, and vineyards, and sheep, and oxen, and men servants, and maid servants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee, and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper, white as snow. Thank you very much, and you may be seated. All right, let's see if we can recap the story that we've learned here. So we have at the beginning introduced this man Naaman, a great captain, a hero of the, a former war. Naaman is a leper. He is living in the land of Syria. He's an aristocrat. He's a general. He's a wealthy man. He's a man of honor and esteem in his own home country, but he's a leper. One of the captives that he had taken was a little slave girl. And the slave girl, oddly enough, made a comment and said, it's too bad Naaman isn't in the land of Israel, my home country. I remember when I lived there, there was a great prophet, and that prophet would heal him. Well, this comment percolated to her mistress, presumably Naaman's wife, and it was passed on up the line through the aristocratic channels to the king of Syria. And the king of Syria said, I've got an idea. Ha <laughs> ha Let's send Naaman to the land of Israel, and we'll see. So Naaman is given the order to go to the land of Israel, and he's given a great bit of wealth to go with him, talents of gold and silver and clothing and all this sort of thing. And he goes and presents himself to the king of Israel, King Jehoram. Jehoram receives him. And Naaman says, well, I'm here to be healed. My king sent me to your country because he says, you people have the ability to heal me. The king of Israel says, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. The king of Syria is trying to provoke, provoke another war. He's trying to prov provoke me. He's trying to poke sticks into my cage and... and I can't heal him. So the king of Israel was like, what am I supposed to do with this guy? I, 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 don't, I can't do anything with leprosy, obviously. So when, when I have to report back and it becomes known that, that well, I, the, the, this is not true, you know, the Israelites can't do anything here, then the king of Syria is going to be angry with me and it's going to result in another war. This is a catastrophe. It's a diplomatic tr problem. Well, it turns out that Elisha hears about this. And Elisha sends word up to the palace to King Jehoram and says, Not a problem. Bring him down to me. No problem. Send him down to me. Well, Jehoram is happy to pass him off, so Naaman goes on down to see the prophet Elisha. And he arrives at Elisha's house, and Naaman says, Well, I'm here. Come on out. Elisha doesn't even invite him in the house. Elisha sends a servant out to see Naaman, never sees him face to face. Elisha sends a servant out and says, tell Naaman to go down to the Jordan River, wash seven times, and you'll be clean of leprosy. Well, first of all, Naaman's very mad and he's aggravated. He said, oh, well, this is supposed to be that great prophet of which I've heard now. He wouldn't even come and see me. 
I'm an important man. He wouldn't even come and look at me face to face. I expect him to come on out and in the name of his God, wave his hand and do, you know, abracadabra, alakazam, and poof, you know, do something dramatic. So he's angry. And this part of the story is popular. It's well known. This part of the story is well known. Naaman becomes angry. He leaves in a rage. And as he's climbing into his chariot and heading home, one of his servants says, hey, look, master, it's kind of an easy thing to try. We're you know, we're kind of passing the Jordan River on the way home anyway. You might as well give it a whirl. Why not? What do you have to lose? So Naaman simmers down and says, I guess you're right. So instead of rushing back in a rage to Damascus, where he can uh, pretend that his rivers are better than the Jordan River, and he says, well, all right, so we'll give it a try. So he does. So as we probably may remember from these stories that we hopefully maybe many of us learn as, as children, he goes down to the Jordan River, bathes seven times, comes up, he's healed. Well, he's pretty happy and excited, isn't he? Well, naturally he would be so. And so he goes back to Elisha. And he says, it's, I, I need to reward you. I need to reward you. I, I've got all these gifts that the king of, of Syria had sent with me. I need to give them to you. And Elisha says, I don't want, we don't want your money. We don't need your money. We're not interested in all that financial stuff. Just take it with you. Off you go. <laughs> Naaman makes an odd request, though, which we'll touch on. He says, is it all right with you, after, now that I'm going back to my home country, and thank you very much for healing me, would it be all right with you if I carry some dirt with me? I'd like to load up a couple of donkeys or mules here with some dirt from your country to take with me. <clears throat> would that be okay? And Elisha says, sure, go in peace. Great, no problem. So off he goes. On his way home, and this is another feature of the story that's well known, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, scratches his head and is, says to himself, huh, you know, my master turned down all that wealth. That's kind of odd. So he runs after him. Now, the Bible does not record what Gehazi is thinking, we could speculate here. If I speculate, I would say Gehazi is probably thinking, well, you know, I've been a faithful servant of, of Elisha for a long time. I deserve a little benefit. Maybe I can dig in here a little bit and get a little something for myself. That seems obvious he's thinking that. But he may be justifying it in other ways. He may be justifying this little bit of a, uh, what's the right word? Embezzlement. He may be justifying his embezzlement by saying something like, well, probably a lot of this wealth that Naaman has started in the land of Israel, and they took it away in their last campaign when they beat us. We're just getting back some of what they took away. Took away some of our plunder. I'm, only getting, I'm just getting a small part of it back, perhaps. Well, we really don't know what Gehazi was thinking to justify this. But Gehazi runs after him, <laughs> asks for a small amount of it, Naaman is willing to, to, to do so. But when Gehazi reports back, Elisha, being a prophet, says, Gehazi, what you been up to? Oh, not much. You know, just hanging around here, you know. Not really been busy at all today. Been kind of a low-key day. Oh, uh, I think you've been up to some other nonsense, haven't you, Gehazi? And, of course, the punishment comes down, doesn't it? A pretty harsh one. Elisha declares that the leprosy that came out of Naaman would cling to Gehazi and to Gehazi's family, his children. That's tough. That's tough. Gehazi has a weak moment, and there's a pretty harsh penalty on Gehazi and his children. It's an interesting story, and there's a lot of lessons that we can draw from this. And before we're done, presuming I can get through all that I'd like to this morning, we're going to come back and we're going to look at each one of these characters, and we're going to see if there's some practical life lessons for you out of these various characters. But before we do, I'd like to shift gears, and before we get into the practical elements, I'd like to digress a little bit here, and I would like to talk about what the central message of this entire chapter might be, at least from my point of view. Why is this story in Scripture? What is the message that we should draw from it? And are, are there any elements 
that are important in the larger picture. Setting aside practical lessons, what are the larger elements that could be drawn from this story? And I'm going to land on verse 8 and verse 15. So I'd like to draw your attention now to verse 8 and verse 15. It's a statement given by Elisha and a statement that is given by Naaman. So Elisha declares now in verse 8 why Elisha is going to heal Naaman. Why he intervened when the message came back to the king, Jehoram. Why? Let's look at verse 8. And it was so, when Elisha the man of God had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore have you rent your clothes? Let him come to me now. Why? Why should he come to me, and why am I going to heal him? This is why. He shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Elisha is trying to enhance his reputation? Is Elisha trying to trumpet to the world, oh, look at what I can do? I don't think so. I think the general point that Elisha is trying to make is a point that he wants to make to, all, to the king of Israel, to all of the Israelites, to the people of Damascus, to King Benadad, to Naaman, to all the world to know that God has not abandoned Israel. God has not abandoned Israel. There is still a prophet among us. So in this time of apostasy, in this time of cultural decline and near collapse, God has not abandoned Israel. Now that's a point of hope that is worth you and I looking at and thinking on in our own time of apostasy. Now, I don't know in contemporary United States of America if there is a prophet among us here. But I would like to hope and believe that God has not abandoned us simply because we are a minority, a remnant, simply because most of the land has followed the pagan, idolatrous ways of the world just the way the northern kingdom had. Just because we have a pathetic and foolish leader, perhaps God has not abandoned us either. So I would like to think that that's the case now, because that was the case then. God had not abandoned the northern kingdom of Israel. There was still a prophet among them. And in fact, verse 15 goes a bit further. Now, Naaman makes a statement here in verse 15, after he's healed, that is somewhat Interesting, considering he is um, a, a man of um, you know a man of the world and a man of a, that's a traditional enemy of Israel. Now he says in verse fifteen, let's look at this. This is after he is healed, and so Naaman has had an, an, a moment of epiphany. He has had some dramatic moment in his life, and he says in verse fifteen, after he returned to God, to the, to the man of God, to Elisha, and his company. He came and stood before Elisha, and he says, here's, what, here's words, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Only in Israel is God found. Naaman makes this confession. Now, there are some people here this morning who are probably wondering, well, it, did Naaman, what kind of a conversion experience did Naaman have? Well, I don't really know. I can only speculate on that. You say, well, what kind of a man was Naaman? So some of you here this morning might be wondering, is, was Naaman, uh, was, was, was he a white man? He wasn't an Israelite. He wasn't a Hebrew. But was he even in some sort of an a, a Adamic man? Well, I think the answer to that would be yes, he was. The Syrian people at this time, Benadad and Naaman, were probably Caucasian, white, Adamic folk and would have been indistinguishable by ethnicity and race from Israelites. They were not chosen 
They did not have the covenant blessing and protection that Israelites did through the ages. Now, what does all this mean regarding Naaman? Well, I I can't answer that question completely, and that's not my purpose here this morning. My purpose, though, is to, to, to note what we have in verse 8 and verse 15 and observe what Naaman says when he said, There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Naaman confesses and admits that Israel is unique, is special, and is peculiar in a very wholesome and positive way in God's eyes. God has placed a speciality upon Israel, a unique imprint, a unique calling, a unique purpose, a unique destiny upon Israel. And throughout all the ups and downs of history, that never changes. Now, only in Israel is God found. Now, it appears to me that this actually has a twofold meaning. The first meaning is one that I think is familiar to you, and that is that God's mark is on Israel, has always been on Israel, and always be, will be upon Israel wherever Israel goes. And that there is something unique and special about Israel wherever they go, whether they stay in the land of Israel or depart, when they come back, there is always something to be said about God having a place in Israel among a faithful remnant. Now that can be elaborated in many of the places of Scripture, and that's been done, done from this pulpit. I'd like to look at a second area, though, and take a few minutes and digress a little bit. It turns out that <clears throat> there's something unusual that occurred right after this. And then, so let's look at this. This is found in verses 17 and 18 and 19. Something peculiar Naaman does. In verse 17, Naaman makes a request of Elisha. He says, Can I take two mules' burden of earth? I want to take some dirt with me, some soil. I want to load up a couple of mules with some bags of dirt to take home with me to my homeland out of the land of Israel. What's all that about? That's a little weird. Is that a little bizarre? Why, why does he want to take dirt? Does he, want to, does he think it's better soil? Is he going to plant a garden? What, what, what's going on? Is this miracle grow? What does he expect? What's going on? Why does he want the dirt? Well, <clears throat> let me see if I can elucidate a little bit. He then goes on to say, I'm not going to offer any burnt offering or sacrifice but unto the Lord, unto Jehovah. And then he goes on in verse 18, and by the way, <laughs> I've got a little problem, a little personal political problem. I'm going to go back and my king Benadad is going to expect me to go with him into the house of our pagan god Rimmon. And I'm going to be, ex- be expected to escort him and support him and offer my arm to him as we go into the house of this pag- our pagan god Rimmon. I don't really want to do that anymore, but please forgive me. I'm going to be in big trouble with my king if I don't. So I'm going to have to do that. So please understand that I'm only doing it so my king does not become angry with me and execute me or whatever. So that's what verse 18 is about. And interestingly enough, Elisha didn't disagree with any of this. Elisha didn't scold him for that request. Elisha didn't say to him, well, that taking that dirt is a silly and foolish notion. In fact, Elisha said, go in peace. Take it. Off you go. Well, apparently, Naaman believed that an altar to the one true God was going to be better if it had soil from the land of Israel. That's a, kind of a little bit of an odd thought to modern minds. In a modern world, to think that soil from the land of Israel is somehow superior to soil in some other place, as if that soil has some sort of spiritual quality to it, 
A skeptic would say that's absurd and ridiculous. Although, <clears throat> I'm here to suggest it's not quite as absurd as ridiculous as it might seem. <clears throat> and that's why Elisha didn't correct him. I'd like to suggest that there really is something unique and special about the soil and the dirt in the land of Israel. And that's because the land of Israel is indeed a special and unique place. Now, modern people do a few things that kind of run in this direction a little bit. And I've done this, and probably some of you have done this. Some of you who maybe have traveled will bring home souvenirs. So I, I, in my travels, I brought home souvenirs of small rocks from faraway places. So uh, I, I smuggle them out from, in, you know, in, in my bag when I get on the plane and bring back. So I've got a little rock from England and one from Austria, and I've got this and that and thus. And in fact, I even have a former student who knew that I had this, <clears throat> and he did something that I believe is technical, technically illegal. He was in the Marines, and his unit went to Iwo Jima, and he brought me back a little vial of Iwo Jima sand, which is against the rules, <laughs> because Iwo Jima now belongs to Japan, actually. And so he brought me back some of the black sand from Iwo Jima to add to my little collection, because he knew I did this sort of thing. Now, now, why do I do that? Well, I don't know. It's just sort of a silly thing. But the point is, a lot of people do this sort of thing. And there's probably some of you who have a, a rock or some object from some faraway place that is special to you. Now, it turns out that maybe there is something that's going on underneath our rational minds in which there is something special about certain places. So I'd like to digress for just a few minutes and talk about the Holy Land. Because I believe there is something special about the Holy Land. Now, we don't have time to read all the verses that are found in your outline. So I'm probably just going to refer to them without actually quoting them and reading them. All right, are you ready? So go to your outline, the bottom of the first page, I have written down there that a question, is the land of Israel truly a holy land above other places on the earth? And I believe the answer to that question is yes, it is truly a holy land above other places on the earth. Now let me lay out a couple of passages and the evidence for that. Number one, if we go back to Genesis chapter 13, and we read verses 14 through 17, God specifically promised Abraham that that land would be given to him and to his children forever. And he specifically told Abraham to walk the length of it and the breadth of it and look it over closely because it was going to be his and his offspring forever. Hmm. Next. And you know some of these stories. They're in the early history of Israel, going back to the days of Moses and Joshua. When they were getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan, there are a couple of stories that you might recall. As a preface to this, you'll recall that on the mount where Moses was given the Ten Commandments, which is at the lower end of the land of Israel, in Exodus chapter number 3, God told Moses, take off your sandals because this is holy ground, as he stood before the burning bush. It was holy ground. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means it's special. It's special ground. This is not an ordinary place. Now, a very similar occurrence was in the life of Joshua. Shortly after the children of Israel entered into the land of Canaan in Joshua chapter 5, there was a special epiphany, an appearance of an angelic warrior that appeared to Joshua. And in verses 13 through 15, we desc it describes how Joshua spoke to this man. And this glowing, glittering, angelic being said to him, Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. The idea that there is such a thing as holy ground is not completely nonsensical. And it has a factual basis in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32 does not state that the land of Israel is holy ground, but it, if you read it closely, you get the sense that maybe there is something there. 
about this land that is holy and special. But there is a prophet that does. And I'm going to read this for you to get this into the record because this particular passage is not well known. If you'd like to turn to Zechariah chapter 2, Zechariah is the second to last prophet. And he lived in about the year 400 B.C. So if we flash forward about a thousand years after the days of Moses and Joshua, we come to the era of Zechariah, who is 900 or a thousand years later. And in chapter 2, Zechariah has a couple of statements that are interesting. He says this, Zechariah says in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Zechariah calls it a holy land. This region is a holy land. Now, it's interesting to note, and I won't read the passages, but for those of you who know a little bit about eschatology, you'll be familiar with the two passages at the bottom of the first page. In Acts chapter 1, you will recall, it very specifically tells us that when Jesus ascended to heaven and left his disciples, he literally left from the Mount of Olives, a very specific location. Now, Jesus' miraculous departure at that time and His second coming are very geographically specific. If you'd like to look in Zechariah chapter 14, you will find, I won't read those verses, but they're there for you to look at later, you will find that it specifically tells us that the second coming of Jesus Christ is to that very same spot, the Mount of of olives. The Mount of Olives is adjacent immediately to the city of Jerusalem, very near the center of what we might now call the Holy Land. So, to, to summarize our thoughts here, is the land of Israel a holy land above other places on the earth? The answer is yes, I believe. And it's not ridiculous for Naaman to have recognized that and to say, you know, I'd like to take a little piece of this holy land home with me. Very much like a modern veteran might say, it would be wonderful if I could take home to show my grandchildren a rock or a bit of sand from a battle I once fought many years ago known as Iwo Jima land that is special and sacred and holy to me and to my comrades because we fought and died there. Well, I'm not saying Iwo Jima is special, like the Holy Land, or any other place. Because what I'm talking about is what Scripture tells us. And the Bible seems to clearly indicate that there is something unique and special about the Holy Land. Now, I'm going to explore that just a little bit in a modern context and I'd like to shift, uh, expand on that a few minutes. Now, the question could be asked, if that is true, if the Holy Land is unique and special, what should be our attitude about the Holy Land today and its various occupiers? What should we think about it? Well, we would not be unique this morning. If you're agreeing with me, if you do agree with me that the Holy Land is special and unique, is holy, we would not be the first to declare it so, because it turns out there are thousands, millions, and indeed probably tens of millions, hundreds of millions, who have thought the same thing over the last 2,000 years. Now, the Holy Land, in brief, the history of the Holy Land in the last 2,000 years goes something like this. Christians occupied the Holy Land with a large degree of security until the 7th century. And then, with the rise of Muhammad and Islam, in the 630s, Muslims took the Holy Land and savagely massacred the Christians that lived there. 
The conquest of Islam over the Holy Land and what we now call the Middle East was a catastrophic event. There were five great cities of Christianity in those days. Three of them fell to Islam. The great city of Jerusalem, the city of Antioch, and the city of Alexandria. Only two did not fall in the 7th century to Islam, Rome and Constantinople. For people living then, that was a catastrophe of the first magnitude. Since that time, in the 13 or 1400 years that have passed, except for a single century, Islam occupied and has abused that land. Now, when I say occupied and abused, I do mean that. You might wonder why in the Old Testament you read of great forests. And you do not see great forests in the Holy Land today. That is because where Islam goes, it destroys. It is one of the most destructive forces on the face of this planet. And it destroys the land, the people. It is a destructive force beyond what most people would presume. Now a third point on this area, and I'm going to talk for a few moments about Islam. We consistently in the West, I want you all to pay attention with me just for a few minutes now on these couple of points I'd like to share, because these are not shared often enough. We consistently underestimate the cruelty and the moral depravity of Islam. Think of those words when you see when you think of Islam, I want you to think of these two words, these two phrases. Cruelty, moral depravity. It is a completely false idea that somehow that Islam has some great moral standards to which they cling. That is an absolute, utter, utter nonsense. They are morally depraved from the get-go, beginning with Muhammad and beginning with everyone who is a true Islamic believer. Every male, that is. Now, not long ago, I, I finished a book written by a gentleman named Abra Raymond Ibrahim called The Sword and the Scimitar. It was a history of Islam and Christianity and the conflict over the last 1400 years since this evil religion was launched. I'd like to read from you a few selections from that book. He, uh, the first one I'd like to read for you is discussing what is known as jihad. Now jihad, of course, is holy war. And people misunderstand jihad. They, they misunderstand the idea that jihad is somehow uh, something um, that the Muslims do because they are powerful believers in sacredness and godliness and virtue. And the reality is pretty close to the opposite. Jihad is about conquest, and it is about wealth, and it is about sexual conquest. Now, I'm going to read a few things that might be a little appropriate for very young children, but I'm going to go ahead and get it out there so you just be, be forewarned. This is what jihad is according to Muhammad, true believers of Islam, not secularized believers of Islam who aren't truly Islamic, but are very much like secular Christians, very much like secular Christians who say they're Christian but really don't know a thing about the Bible. There are secular Muslims who don't know a thing about Islam, but say they're Islamic. But for those who know the Quran and those who are the followers of the teachings of Muhammad, this is what they teach, and this is what most of them have practiced in the 1,400 years since the 7th century. The jihad goes like this. Whoever survived a successful raid or war against the infidel was guaranteed all the usual spoils of war, plunder, and slaves, including concubines. And whoever died in jihad was guaranteed similar but greater spoils in the afterlife. 
Either way, you see, the men who fight jihad win. Muhammad wrote, I guarantee him either admission to paradise or to return from where he set out with a reward of booty, including slaves and concubines. Regarding the martyr, Muhammad said, fixed upon his head, those who die in jihad will receive a crown of honor, a ruby that is greater than the world and all it contains. And he will <clears throat> and he will copulate with 72 huris. <laughs> the huris are supernatural celestial women, wide-eyed and big-bosomed, says the Quran, created by Allah for the express purpose of gratifying his favorites in perpetuity. Apologize for the graphic language. Flashing forward, it's not only Muhammad who thought that way. Let me give you as just one illustration. Many of you have heard of the Ottoman Turks. They were Islamic folks who came later. One of the more successful of their sultans was a man named Bayezid, who lived in 1360, about in the 1300s, the 14th century. Here's a description of this man, this great Islamic sultan. It says, like many other Muslim leaders before and after him, Bayezid was at once pious and depraved, with no apparent conflict between the two. In between jihads, Bayezid would live idle and wantonly and never ceased from lascivious sexual acts, indulging in licentious behavior with boys and girls. But he also had a contrasting religious side to his nature, building for himself a small chamber at the top of his mosque, where he would confer with the theologians of his Islamic establishment. So you see, for Islamic men, jihad and these rewards, both material and sexual, is being a good Muslim. That's what makes you a good Muslim. Their attitude about learning, their attitude about knowledge, is another feature. I'll read one item to characterize this. There's one of these little mysteries in history that occasionally you hear debated. In the great city of Alexandria, the Greeks, including Greek Christians, had assembled a vast library. How many have ever heard of the great library of Alexandria? Whatever happened to it? Well, we now know. Recent discoveries... Tell us this. There have been things that have been discovered. It turns out that Muslim historians, they knew all along. A gentleman named Omar, who was the caliph at the time that Alexandria was conquered, when he took over the city of Alexandria, it was inquired of Omar what he should do with the tens of thousands of books and scrolls found in this massive building. Omar responded by saying, if they do not agree with our book, the Koran, we do not need them. If they disagree with our book, the Koran, we do not want them. Burn them. It is said the amount of ink-stained papyrus and scrolls and books was reportedly so great that serving as fuel, it kept the bathhouses of Alexandria continuously lit for six months, who of course were being occupied by the Muslim conquerors. Finally, one more section in this area. When we think of Islam, I just want you to bear this in mind. <clears throat> when we find modern statements made and modern events unfolding, when the Islamic state declares something like this, and this is a quotation, when they say, American blood is best and we will taste it soon, or when they say, we love death as you love life, or when they say, we will conquer your Rome, break your crosses, and enslave your women. Virtually no one understands that what they're quoting are the verbatim words of their jihadi forebears. They're walking in the paths of their forefathers. When Muslim men sexually assault Western women, Western women like when saying things like, 
oh, you white women are good at it, or German women are there to be raped, or all Australian women are sluts and deserve what they get. Let's rape them. Very few understand that they're drawing on a long tradition of seeing pale infidels as the epitome of promiscuity and are ready and ripe for the taking. When Muslim migrants go on church vandalizing sprees and destroy crosses, churches, Christian statues by the hundreds in Germany and France and Austria, very few understand that this has been the modus operandi that has stretched back and been on continuous display since Islam's first contact with Christianity 1,300 years ago. Now, of course, that is only one of the two parties that occupies the Holy Land. As you know, in this well-informed congregation, you know that in the early 1900s, British colonial powers implanted Zionist imposters into the land. It began with the Balfour Declaration and continued in the 1920s with the establishment of many Jewish Jew kibbutzes. Now, for the record, let's understand that these Zionist imposters have absolutely no claim to the land whatsoever. And let me read for you a few statements just so we're all clear. Genetically, the Jews are most closely related to the Hun, the Uyghur, and the Magyar tribes of Central Asia than they are to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Arthur Kessler and the 13 tribes, the 13th tribe. Here's another quote. The American people have been led to believe that Jews are God's chosen people. This myth was started by a small group of Jews leading the cry, We are God's chosen people, and the Marxist Zionist Jews who for political purposes chose Judaism, but do not have a drop of biblical Hebrew blood in them. You maybe have heard of H.G. Wells. He's one of the uh, great historians that came out of the Western English world. He has this to say. He says, the main part of Jewry never was in Judea and had never come out of Judea. Political Zionism is almost exclusively a movement by the Jews of Europe. But these Eastern European Jews have neither a racial nor historic connection with Palestine. Their ancestors were not inhabitants of the Promised Land. They are the direct descendants of the Khazar Kingdom. And of course, you know what it tells us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And if you missed it, it's repeated in verse 9 of chapter 3, which many of you may recall, but I'd like to read into the record. It says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. You may also know that since 1948, in the establishment of the modern nation of Israel, that modern Jewry and Islam have fought four wars in 75 years in the Holy Land and scores of other minor conflicts. Now I'd like to tell you very clearly there's not going to be any peace or proper reckoning until the return of Jesus Christ and the miraculous gathering of true Israel to that land. And if you'd like, if you have time, I won't read them into the record since we're running a little short here. If you read in Ezekiel chapter 39 and 37, you'll just get a description of the regathering of Israel into the land, or the regathering of true Israel, and the return of the land to the true people who have claim over the land, legitimate and lawful biblical claim. Lawful claim of the land is not because you were there first. It is not because you've been there the longest. It is not because you have the power to keep it. Lawful claim to the land is because God says this is the party that owns it. And that is why it belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because we have the power to take it or possess it or keep it, any more than they have the power to take it, possess it, or keep it. It's because God declares that it belongs to our people. Yet we will not occupy it, if I understand eschatology correctly until there is a divine regathering and Jesus Christ returns and divinely cleans it 
in great violence and divinely brings his people back in a miraculous manner. And if you have time, you may want to read Ezekiel 39, Ezekiel 37, and Matthew 13, and Revelation 19, and a few other places. Now, I don't want to leave here this morning without going back to the text we began with. And I've been on a bit of a digression looking at the idea that the land of Israel is a holy and special land. And even Naaman the, pro- Naaman the man who, is, who, who didn't live there sensed that, which is why he wanted to cart some soil home with him when he left. But I'd like to return to that story. There are some practical and spiritual insights that we can look at, so I'd like to take a few minutes to do that. Now, regarding our story and the players in this drama, let's look at a couple of them. Let's start with Naaman. Now, despite Naaman's illness, he was not so sick that he wasn't prickly and proud. He had leprosy, but he still retained strength to travel and a great deal of pride. Before it was all done, Naaman had to take advice from an underling. He had to concede that a servant who told him, go ahead, why don't you go ahead and wash in the Jordan, he had to concede that that servant had a good and valid point. Naaman had to be humbled. And Naaman had to go on to do that which seemed to him to be foolish. And that is always the case with a person who is proud. And how many of us are challenged in the area of pride? That's what keeps us from receiving advice. We think we've got it all figured out, even though we're in the midst of our trouble. We think we really still have a handle on the situation. But we're blind and we don't. And our pride has to be reduced before we can get the information we need that can really help us. Proverbs 15.32 says it this way, He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul. What about Gehazi? It's easy to see what Gehazi's great flaw was in this story. Very simple. He was greedy. Gehazi was greedy. Now it's ironic, but people with this flaw do not see themselves as as such and find various ways to justify their greed. It is very common. And it probably is not difficult for you to imagine someone that you've met that justifies their avarice and their acquisition of wealth as being a virtue, and really it is a great distraction in their life. Now, wealth is not evil. Wealth is not evil when it's obtained in a manner contrary to God's priorities. If, 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 if you obtain it, though, in a way, let me get that right. If you obtain wealth in a way that is contrary to God's priorities, it will be a curse to you and your children. Let me repeat that. If you are seeking and obtaining wealth in a way that is contrary to God's priorities, it will be a curse to you and your children, just as it was a curse to Gehazi and to his children. And your children may bear the cost. Proverbs fifteen twenty seven: He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. Can we learn anything from King Jehoram? Well, mostly what we can learn from King Jehoram is he learned nothing from a miracle. He learned nothing. His reign ended in calamity. If you keep reading, we discover that King Jehoram was eventually slain by Jehu, and all of Jehoram's sons and nephews were killed as well. And the dynasty came to a inglorious and shameful end, all because King Jehoram proved to be an unteachable man, and even a miracle didn't capture his attention. Now the last lesson, and one of the most beautiful lessons in this entire story, is the little maid. I'd like to take the last few minutes and look at that little maid again more closely. Now, if you'd like to return for just a moment to 2 Kings chapter 5, 
and look at the brief mention of our little maid and then try to imagine her place and her perspective and her circumstance and her response. We know so little about her. In verse 3, this little maid is introduced to us. But bear in mind now, as we make this final pass here, ladies and gentlemen, this little maid had been taken as a slave, as a child, out of her homeland, and became the prize, became a, an object to Naaman and Naaman's wife. She was a slave. She was a piece of property. She was a captive. She'd been taken captive in that previous campaign we discussed earlier. So she's a slave in a foreign land. Now, imagine yourself a slave in a foreign land. And imagine that you remember what it was like in your homeland not that many years prior. Imagine you're longing to return to that homeland. Imagine you're longing to see that time again. Also, imagine how you might feel about your master who conquered you and your people, captured you as a young lady, which means that your home probably was destroyed, your brothers and your family might have been killed, and now you are serving as the slave of the man who made all of that happen. Most of us would probably have an attitude a little different than that little maid. Now, when, I, when I'm reading between the lines here and what little we know about this girl, it's not complete idle speculation because that's what we know happened then and that's what happens in war when captains, captives are taken and are enslaved. So it's highly likely that this girl suffered greatly, this little maid. And, it's, and it would be easy to imagine that her response to her master's disease would have been very different than what it was. It would be easy for her to say to herself, I hope he dies of leprosy. I hope his wife catches it. I hope he goes down and I'm enjoying his decline. But you see, that wasn't what she said. And that wasn't her response. And she said to her mistress, Would God my Lord were in the, with the prophet in Samaria, for then he would recover from his leprosy. She wanted his master to recover. She wanted this man, Naaman, to be healed. Now we don't know if Naaman was kind to her or cruel. But even if he was kind, this little maid, the slave girl, can teach us something. This little girl was not filled with bitterness. She had something else in her heart. And in a word, I'm going to just call it forgiveness. Forgiveness. She was soft and tender toward the man to which it would have been natural for her to be embittered toward. Now, the forgiveness in her heart reminds us of something. It reminds me of Jesus' words, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. This little girl was mature beyond her years. Now, regarding forgiveness, let me read for you a few closing quotations. C.S. Lewis had this to say about forgiveness. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. One of the great scholars and writers of 19th century England was a gentleman known as G.K. Chesterton. I hate to admit it, but he was a Roman Catholic. But he has something to say on this topic. Chesterton said, to love means loving the unlovable. To forgive means pardoning the unpardonable. Faith means believing the unbelievable. Hope means hoping when everything seems hopeless. And finally, another man in which I do not admire in every respect, but he has something worth listening to here this morning. 
That's Rick Warren. Rick Warren makes a practical and clear point about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness and trust are not the same. Trust must be rebuilt over time. Forgiveness, however, must be immediate whether or not a person asks for it. Might think on that. Forgiveness is one of the great challenges that each of us face. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is one of the most important lines in Scripture and is present in the greatest prayer in the Bible. You may not have something right now today that will be a challenge for you to forgive. But you probably will, in upcoming months or years, have something that enters into your life in which there's a small voice inside you telling you that I need to forgive, but I just don't know that I, if I can. Well, think on this story. Think on this little maid. And think of your God that has forgiven you. Well, I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and I pray that the message that we find in the story of Naaman, Gehazi, Elisha, and the little maid has something useful for us as we think about both the lessons that we can draw from their lives and from the land that we can look forward to returning to one day. I mean, that land will be cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ and we will be restored to that which God tells us belongs to our ancestor Abraham and will one day be returned to us. Well, I thank you for your kindness and patience. May God bless you.